this is a recap of episode 21 through 40 of Fenrir. To get the scoop on episode 1 through 20, listen to the last recap episode we did, which is available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As head of the Circle of the Moon, Sable orders Ophelia Varathi, a key member of House Varathi, to work with the Fae to stop the growth of thorns towards the house. The deal goes bad fast. Ophelia is immediately commanded to attack House Mason, an action which would assuredly result in a war and the likely slaughter of both houses. To stop this, our heroes rush to the incredibly dark and spooky maze dungeon of House Mason to spirit Ophelia away from her fairy handlers. When Sable tries to take Ophelia into a fairy-proofed room, though, she is crushed horribly into a pile of sticks. That's how our heroes learn about the existence of fetches, weak copies of people that exceptionally powerful fae can create when they kidnap the real person. The fetch carries on its life, unaware of its nature unless someone reveals it, which no one wants to do since then the fetch goes mad, gains power, and likely goes on a murder spree. Meanwhile, our heroes need to gather six components of mystical power to help Miev create a thorns-cutting golem. A heart of fire to burn the thorns, a heart of ice to freeze them, a heart of iron to bend its bones, a heart of stone to protect them, and a heart of life to make it move, all with a necklace of power for control. The party sets out to hunt Thorns Beasts, and thanks to a really unfortunate role, they manage to bait in a badly mutated red dragon while standing on the outskirts of the Varathi family lumber grove. Even though they try hard to avoid the fight, another set of unfortunate roles leads to battle. They successfully acquire the Heart of Fire, but the grove is nearly destroyed and the kingdom is thrown into economic panic. Drama in the Thieves' Guild finally spills over into violence, as the last two were-rats of the Inner Circle force the others into lycanthropy and use them as shock troops against House Evans in an attempt to wipe out the entire family. The party thankfully investigates before the assault starts and has time to prep the house for war. Sable, unfortunately, is tied to a fairy agreement to worship the fairy queen on the night of the full moon, and is pulled away from participating in the defense. Nearly the entire Thieves' Guild is wiped out, but House Evans remains standing. While that drama unfolds, Sable attempts to remake the Circle of the Moon into a benevolent organization, and casts out all of its current members, telling them they can rejoin in three days if they choose, and then conducts a worship ceremony of the fairy queen in front of a small war band that just happened to be in the area. Shortly after the ceremony, the Fairy Queen realizes that she is required to return all the souls sacrificed to her Fairy Court in exchange for Circle of the Moon membership, now that those members are not members any longer, and her rage unleashes a freak storm on the kingdom. The next morning, thanks to Sable's quick thinking and a small set of deals, 300 people emerge from the Thorns, unmutated and missing various amounts of time, having spent decades agelessly serving the Fairy Queen in her realm. Among them are past druids who had gotten so indebted to fairy deals, they were left with no choice but to enter servitude to the fairy queen, including a 200-year-old archdruid and rival heir for House Varathi, Yennefer Varathi. The war party Sable Witness leads an assault on House Mason, attempting to wipe out or capture all of the Masons for some threat they pose to the fairy queen that we still don't understand. The party rushes to their aid, discovering that Champion Helena of House Varathi was leading the assault as the general of the Fairy Queen. She issued her warband deliberately bad instructions and had ordered up a team that could provide the other golem components the party needs. A frost giant for ice, a troll for life, and a rock fairy with a heart of stone. 
Together with the Pornino family, the party defeats the assault on House Mason in a grand battle, but for her failure, Champion Helena seems to have disappeared and been replaced by a fetch. All of the Masons were saved. For defeating the Fairy Queen and thwarting her assault on House Mason, Sable, Silpha, and Jalen are all declared enemies of the Fairy Queen, which promptly triggers anyone with related fairy deals in the kingdom to treat them very differently. Yennefer Varathy asserts her claim as heir to House Varathy, and Lord Minter goes along with it, removing Sable from power. Kylan Evans turns out to have a deal where he has to attack enemies of the Fairy Queen, resulting in a heartbreaking fight between Kylan and Jalen. Our heroes all flee with the Masons to House Lunari, which for some reason is land the Fae dare not tread upon. At House Lunari, Sofa acquires the last component the party needs for the completion of its thorn-cutting golem by making an impassioned public speech and trading away her dowry for a significant heirloom necklace that will function as the heart of power. Her family's reaction to offhand sarcastic remarks from Silpha regarding fairies leads the party to discover there's some kind of fairy secret that the Lunari adults are hiding. When Silpha confronts her parents, it's revealed that Silpha's father, Hanzo, is a fairy, and apparently high enough up in the summer court of Fae that his house and his alliance with House Lunari are considered a kind of fairy embassy. This makes Silpha a half-fae, known as a changeling. Our heroes finish the golem and prepare to enter the thorns, but of course this is just the main plot, and each of the heroes have developments in their own personal story. Silpha formulates a plan for preventing House Mason from returning to the practice of blood magic and becomes more open to the idea of marrying into the family. The regent, Lord Minter, however, learns of the Mason family's secret and makes it clear to Sable and to Silpha that he will not allow the Masons to gain power by acquiring any wizards. He orders them to continue to keep secret what they know, but Silpha is to proceed with her courtship as planned. Despite knowing their courtship will be put to an end, and despite her reservations about joining their family, Silpha is surprised to find herself catching feelings for Byron and his adorable children. When the regent inevitably does as promised, she manages to let Byron down gently, and then becomes somewhat excited to find herself presented with the opportunity to pursue a new relationship with her longtime former crush from school, Leslie, previously Isaac, Evans. She also befriends would-be suitor Thomas Drury, and the two agree to study magic together. Silpha also learns what it means to be a changeling. At the age of 21, she gets to choose whether she is a human or a fairy. Becoming a fairy means, among other things, she will cease aging and changing, and apparently have to marry the partner predestined for her, the Eladrin E. Elamis. Jalen's uncle Kylan turns out to be her birth father, or at least claimed her as his own, but was forced to assume the role of her uncle after an assassination went bad and was tied to him. Kylan is also tied to the Fairy Queen by a few agreements he appears to have been tricked into to control his lycanthropy and protect his daughter. To dissuade the Thieves' Guild of the notion that Jalen was behind the disappearance of Vincent, their previous spiritual leader and Jalen's godfather, Kylan very publicly shaves Jalen's head in a display of control. In the bloodbath that slowly ensues when the Guild descends into infighting, it becomes clear that some kind of agreement made on her behalf is protecting Jalen from lycanthropy. Sable is vilified by large sections of the kingdom as half of her house's lumber resource burns to the ground and spends a great deal of time in druid magic trying to rebuild her family's sustainable lumber operation and fix the damage from the dragon's flames. Lord Mentor tries to serve as kind of mentor... But his motives are deeply in question, as he seems to be moving to Maria's house to House Varathy and exert control over the young Baroness. Yennefer Varathy asserts control of the house and exiles Sable, all in a way that makes it appear to be for Sable's benefit, but nobody really knows. And when Master Wu, Archdruid of the Circle of Land, 
learns that Sable has made herself the last remaining member of what he believes is a corrupted and evil circle of the moon, he assaults Sable and appears to be stopped by agents of the Fairy Queen and killed. This leaves Sable wondering who else plans to kill her and deepens her already anxious isolation. Let's move into Q&A where we hear a little bit from our players about the story. We got this question a number of times from a number of fans, and we all frankly had it ourselves and have had a couple conversations about it. We are playing through a pandemic, historic street riots, conversations about race that a lot of us have not lived through in the past that have really made life pretty stressful. And this is a game that I think qualifies as high role play and high immersion, meaning that you bring your emotions into the character and vice versa. So how did COVID and the the stress of life come through in your role play? I got caught by surprise how that stress came through, because I think what we concerned ourselves with in the beginning was more technical and mechanical. You know, two of us needed to get two new computers and, you know, three of us got new headsets. And then we had to figure out how to coordinate Mm -hmm. the Audacity recordings and all that. You know, we sort of had to relearn and reinvent the wheel a little bit. And we we figured that was going to be our hurdle. And then after several sessions of gameplay, we realized there were other factors that were coming through that I don't think we were expecting and we weren't immediately aware of. And that had to do with the whole change in dynamic of the way the gameplay works. And and I don't think any of us expected that to be an issue. <laughs> I feel like there are a few episodes, for sure, where you can tell that that stress level is high, even though we couldn't necessarily put a finger on it in the moment. But I do think it came through in the role play a little bit. I think the emotions that we were injecting into our characters were very indicative of some of our mindsets in the real world. I think that our emotions were higher than they would be otherwise. The other thing that we have to keep in mind is that we were a friend group that was used to seeing each other at least once every two weeks, if not more often, usually more often. And we hadn't seen each other even face to face in in about three months. And there was a lot of sense of disconnect from that that I don't think that we expected. And I'm playing a character that was already in isolation, and that isolation really did bleed into, you know, what what was going on in the story. You know, just to look on the positive side of it, it, it gave us the opportunity to for the tension between the characters to come to a head. Maybe a bit more explosively than it would have otherwise. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and there's a difference between having a discussion on camera and having a discussion at the dining room table with each other. Like, we're all talking heads on the camera. And so a lot of body language is missing. You know, you're left to kind of infer what the other person is implying with their literal words much more than you have to at a table. The art of having a, an argument or a debate also suffered. So I think we would have had a much more reasonable, down-to-earth kind of character conversation if we had been sitting at the table. I do think it wound up being constructive in a way because we we had a lengthy conversation all off mic and out of character after that in which we sort of had to identify a lot of issues and like and how how we were going to work 
on them, you know, and how we were going to address them. And I, I, I felt a lot better after that. And, you know, but it was like, we're on such a learning curve with this on, in so many different ways. And I, and that was just wound up being one of them. One good thing that I think comes out of it as a reminder to anyone who role plays is that the time that you take outside of the game to interact with each other is vital that it was a lot less satisfying than when we were recording and then going out to dinner together. So we decided that we would make time for that. And we also decided to kind of have a little like chat happy hour in the off weeks to kind of do stuff that's not game as a friend group. Other weird quirks that happened from COVID. I will say that recording in separate places gives very clean audio. So I probably will choose to go back to meeting in person when we can, but like holy moly, did this make our audio editing just so much smoother. On the kind of logistics side, too, is, you know, COVID wasn't the only thing going on. You know, we've had riots. We're we're a Portland, Oregon-oriented podcast, and our city's been in the news now for like 100 days, right? Which really makes us want to say something about the state of the world and, and kind of pick some sides and do some good. There's a struggle there, right? Because... We're also an escapist medium. Yeah, you're here to play Dungeons and Dragons and, and or or listen to us play Dungeons and Dragons and talk about how great D and D is and we're we're not necessarily here to talk about wild inconsistencies in our judiciary processes. You know, like I struggled a great deal with like, well how do we how do we address that? Do we address that? And eventually settled on, you know, silence is complacency, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because people aren't here to dwell on the the horrors of the world we live in. I mean, there, there's a you know balancing act between our intended platform as an escapist D and D podcast, and and yeah, not saying anything, which we just couldn't do. <laughs> You're dealing with some issues that are pertinent to our own times. I think that there are actually quite a few things in this story that deal with issues that are pertinent to modern time. Are there any that stand out to you? And if so, why why are you handling them the way that you do? Here's a, a great struggle with Dungeons & Dragons that is constant, and we were having it long before the current social unrest. You make an entirely fictional world. You decide what elements of the real world you're going to have in there. And if you decide to add racist NPCs or racist culture, that's a choice you made. But you chose to put that into your game. And so you need to do that very purposefully, and you need to do it in a way where you're saying something about that, or your characters are triumphing over that. If you have unlimited control of the world your characters occupy, why did you choose to have assholes in the world? And the reality is, it's not a very fun game. Sing Kumbaya, and there's no adversity, and everybody's happy and the world is exactly the world you'd love it to be. Our heroes have to have some adversity, but then you have to pick and choose that adversity very purposefully. I'm pretty happy that we chose a very inclusive version of Dungeons and Dragons, where we have people with multinational names, which there's no pictures behind it, but I imagine these people as multinational people with diverse faces as much as diverse behaviors and cultures. I hope that that comes through. I feel shallow saying it, but for me, honestly, I can't say that I've put a lot of thought into relating the issues of our our game setting and our characters in the context of real world current events. And um, I think 
one reason for that to provide a personal context is that I work in a healthcare setting, which is stressful even when we're not in the midst of a global pandemic. So in my job on a, on a daily basis and now in an even more raw way than usual, I, I see the systemic inequalities and problems that exist in this country's healthcare system. And it's really heartbreaking to me. So for me, this game is a luxury. It's something I participate in as a purely escapist activity. It's a, it's a fiction and I have to be able to separate the the fictional stresses that my character is experiencing from the stress of, of real life in order for it to be fun for me. But I definitely see in your character some of that understanding of that disparity because Silpha is part of the family that really fights for those people as best they possibly can. You know, like, for example, Sable, I am very well aware of the fact that the system that we have built up in Fenrir is a tremendously classist system. And even though my character is not well treated by her family, she 100% grew up in a noble house and has no idea how to behave outside of one and steps on her toe, on other people's toes on a very regular basis. You know, maybe there's a better way of looking at this question, which is, you know, how, how does it make you even more aware of those problems? Is it makes me much more aware of how much just simple ignorance has an impact on those, those issues that, like, if you don't see an issue, if you're not aware of an issue, it's easier for you to say it's a non-issue. That brings up the interesting point that this game would look fundamentally different. Like, we all chose to play characters that can participate in the political intrigue at a certain level, and they all come from very privileged backgrounds. Silpha's family is exceptionally wealthy. Jalen and Sable are both attached to noble houses. We can move through society in a different way than most of the population of Fenrir can, and therefore we'd be telling a very different story if one of us was, you know, the Thorncutter's kid. The the classism issue of Fenrir is one that that has stood out both in and out of character. It's it's something Jalen thinks about a lot, and it comes from the fact that she and Kylan are definite in-betweeners. You know, their commoners would see them as nobles. The nobles see them as second-rate, you know? <laughs> so from that in-between, the strata viewpoint, Jalen does look at these tiers of society and, and, and the inequality and the unsustainability of it. And it's something that I was thinking about both before and after current world events. For me personally, when it comes to the inequality issue and the classism, I crunch on it more like a puzzle, like a problem to solve. I have no idea in a lot of ways where to begin in the real world with this issue, but when it comes to Fenrir, it's something I find myself navigating around and trying to move pieces around and, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how does this change? How does this become something that's sustainable and isn't screwing an entire class of people? How did the overall tone of the story change once we started using the new music? Well, let me put in a shameless plug first. Todd Ferguson's of My Pet Machine, his stuff is really good. Nate just picked up the album, his latest album for all of us, and I, I want you to recommend it. The new album is called Resist, and you can find it on Bandcamp. For me, that step took us out of being just a podcast to, I, I really felt like we were creating drama at that point. It's silly that I didn't feel like it that before. When something is made specifically for you and to enhance it, 
it makes a tremendous difference. It really does. Like I felt like the world just became, it went from plain color to technicolor. And I felt much more of a, of a need to ensure that the drama was, was being brought in. <laughs> and make sure that the play was good and solid and that it met the tone that was being set by that opening. It did encourage me to up my editing game, too. Like, with the... Because suddenly the music was slick, so... <laughs> yeah, with the music being slick, now I want to show it off. And one way to do that is to have the full score playing underneath the recaps. Then we had to go make recaps, right? It upped the quality of what we were producing a lot, and it challenged me to kind of up my game. And it's stuff that I'd been thinking like, oh, man, that would be kind of cool. We could do that someday. And then to have somebody hand you something that's just really cool makes you think, okay, now is the day. I was kind of surprised with how profoundly the new music kind of changed the whole tone of the world in a really good way. Because, you know, we had that guitar riff, which I kind of liked for various reasons. Like, I, I liked how raw it was and that we were kind of raw. And, you know, that was that was good. But I really feel like what we got was so much more than we were expecting. Suddenly we had this score to call our own kind of made something more official and it exposed the fairy in our mist, who cannot help but respond to the sound of the bells. My cat Deacon, whenever the I play an episode beginning out loud, he comes running to the sound of the fairy bells. <laughs> <laughs> Without fail. We got a question from Reese Morris, who asked, fellow DM question. How did you convey all the political information, houses, families, and relationships to the players, revealing bit by bit or as it became relevant or all at once? So the answer is all three. So I started off with a Google Doc that gave each family one paragraph. There are Frikers. This is what they own. There are Druries. This is what they own. In the case of House Evans, they actually had some, some family members with names on there. There was a Jessica and an Isaac. But basically, it was one paragraph. And then the players choose the houses they want to be a connection to. And they gave me some elements in their backstory. And then I basically started introducing the houses really as needed. So you get a sense of what they're about and maybe meet their key top figure, figure out how their flavor is different as the story has progressed. What is their goals? What is their agenda? And those things kind of come out nice and slowly. And some of them are decided based on the player's actions. Uh, one of my big plot strategies here is after the players do something, I sit down and say, all right, how would each one of the major players respond? And that forces me to also give them motivations, directions, and an agenda. Do, do you have an example of like what one of the ones from this game that like you had to sit down and crunch out? Yeah. Okay. So my favorite example is probably not the most illustrative of doing this, but uh, it's my favorite. So I'm going to tell this one. Your characters go down into the basement of House Mason and are, are caught there, right? Like, everybody in the house knows you were snooping in the evil, evil blood magic basement. They're left with, well, what do we do about that? And I sat down and did kind of a little smap of it. Well, what would Lady Mason, who wants to bring back her base of power and blood magic, what would she do? Lord Mason, who is, you know, generally a pretty nice guy, what, what would he do? And then decided that, you know, the simplest solution to this is not to try to 
eliminate these loose ends. It's not to try to even, you know, risk being blackmailed. It's to make them complacent. The simplest solution to this is just to marry the characters into House Mason and make blood magic their problem. There's one character that's a little older than the other ones who happens to be a wizard, who'd be a really vital asset. Let's start there. And so then there was this whole plot where Byron Mason was introduced as a suitor to Silpha Lunari. And we, you know, we played with that a little bit. And then because that took off and, and was going to be a thing, then we had to figure out what the other houses thought of this. Because now Byron Mason, who's one of the older Mason heirs, is dating a commoner. Certain houses have different opinions about that, and we're going to take actions to help or hurt that. And then a few people found out that the whole goal behind this might be to bring back evil magics into House Mason. And then there, a lot of them had really strong opinions after that. So they sort of domino or snowball on each other as you, as you go. Let's do the role play one and the surprise one as one question. So, I, you know, we have like, what's your proudest moment for role play? But we also have like, what surprised you the most during this run of episodes and why? I know my, my proudest moment for Sable. It's when the 300 people came out of the thorns and she's like, I can throw them a party. Because <laughs> it was silly and we laughed about it a lot. But hell's bell, she thought on her feet for that one. I think that the whole thing of finding 300 people suddenly coming to town the single proudest moment was honestly saying baby steps master woo yes which has become a tagline for us <laughs> just trying to get master woo on my side there when i had just tremendous failures that that nate loved absolutely <laughs> loved <laughs> gotta roll a one on those luck rolls man <laughs> uh the most surprising <laughs> moment like I think in and everything right now is finding out that Ophelia was a fetch. I was I just had no idea that that was coming, and that that just came out of the blue and started a whole new set of worries. One thing for Sable that I personally thought has been really great role play are some of the things that are not said. Sable straight up pulled three hundred people out of slavery, and set them free into the kingdom, which is easily the most heroic thing that has happened in this campaign. But she can't really talk about it. Yeah, I used my illicit fairy agreements and my um, unsavory fairy contacts to save 300 people. And so far, only one NPC knows about it. And that NPC is like, my God, this person is the, the greatest hero of our generation. You can't, like, Sable can't run around and tell anybody about this development. The thing is, she tried to tell Master Wu about it, but like imme immediately upon saying, I'm responsible for this, it became evident, like, the details of that being fairy agreements, which he was absolutely the wrong person <laughs> for, for that to be revealed to. So, yeah, it's, it was, that, was a, that became a conundrum. Yeah, there's a lot that goes on in her head that certainly doesn't make it to the table. I was really happy with how the confrontation went between Jalen and Kylan when she cornered him. I had been thinking about the fact that they were probably going to have that conversation for some time, and I was really pleased with how we did that. I also really enjoyed the prep for House Evans for the full moon attack, sending Sable and Leslie to the sewers to scope it out, and then acting on that information. I think there was a lot of creativity with that response. 
I also want to say that I did not plan for any of that response. No, no, this did not go at all how Nate envisioned, and and his uh, thinking on his feet was very impressive. (laughs) Okay, what surprised me? Jalen was less surprised to find out that Kylan was her father than she was to find out that he loved her. I think that came as as the biggest surprise, and, and the fact that he confessed it, although in this somewhat indirect form of a letter he didn't intend for her to get until after he died. That came as a pretty big surprise and kind of an emotional shock for her. There was a relationship that caught me by surprise that I was interested in, and that's actually her relationship with Lord Evans. I, it wasn't something I'd given a lot of thought to before they had a couple of interactions, and I actually found them kind of intriguing. That I think there is a subtlety to their relationship that I hadn't really thought about before, and that kind of came as a surprise. I have really enjoyed the letter writing has been really satisfying to add to the podcast and edit. I'm so glad because I was nervous about all of those. (laughs) I love her gentle mentorship of Jessica. I was really surprised to find out that Jalen is a is a big game thinker. Like she she is a strategizer, (laughs) and she thinks about the big picture and like the long game goals. And I was not expecting her to be like that. I did not expect her to to think any more in the than the short term for like anything. And I almost think that the character has to be nobles don't see her as truly belonging to the noble class, and and common people don't see her as as common. So it's almost like a survival mechanism in and of itself. But I mean, like what she's thinking about when she's looking at the thorn cutting, because, you know, Silpha is proving to be quite the revolutionary in her thinking. And the way Jalen is thinking, she's looking at this thorn cutting class and, and envisioning this French Revolution situation hitting at some point. You know, we can't keep doing this because they're going to rise up and kill everyone. And, and rather than thinking revolutionary like Silva, I mean, she's, she sort of supports the revolutionary mindset, but she's also like, how do I just solve this problem? Like, how do we address this before it explodes? And that's, that's where if, if we remove the thorns, it truly frees a lot of people from the life they have been, been trapped in because no one would choose to cut thorns if they didn't have to. There hasn't been a revolution because the regent has a standing army at his disposal to quell any rebellion that might come up. The fact that the Evans family was not taking care of the Thieves' Guild's families was something that got to her. She's like, all right, we need their loyalty, and that's going to come if they love us, and they're going to love us if we take care of them, you know, that you know, that kind of thing, which is exactly what she learned growing up. And she's like, okay, we have to extend that outward. Well, and that's that's like a Lunari family mentality as well. It's like, well, we can't pay as much as the nobles do for people to cut thorns on our property or work for us, and therefore we have to make sure that there are reasons they would want to and choose to work for us. As far as the single event that surprised me most relating to my character, that would be the reveal that that Silpha was a changeling and that her father was a fairy. That was not something I anticipated. I had begun to get a little bit of suspicion, but I expected that to unfold into something different, like maybe someone in the family had a a significant deal, not that her favorite person (laughs) in her family is a fairy. Those are also developments that came out of roleplay moments that we had. You know, Silpha goes to remove her curse. And one of the things that I did not 
anticipate about this campaign setting is folks unlock the remove curse spell around level five, right? And it it changes the threat of the thorns in a very mechanical way. Now, at this point, probably Sable, definitely Silpha, can undo thorns cursing. Yeah, there's there's major ramifications for that. Yeah, I think I think that isn't just a mechanical shift in the story. I mean, I think it's a profound thematic shift that she can do that now. Like it's it's got a lot of implications. But that's only because we're willing to roleplay it that way. And it presents issues for the character too. Like I I could do this for people. I could do this for a lot of people. But what do the consequences of that look like? I had this realization that. During the combat at House Evans, Silpha potentially could have neutralized the two uh, were-rats that were attacking her by, by casting Remove Curse on at least one. And I guess the, the way we played out that scene feels more true because I, I think I mentioned she wasn't sure if she was capable of doing it. She'd just seen the Remove Curse spell demonstrated and had now read some abjuration magic as to how to remove curses. And so... It's natural that she would start by, after the battle, trying it on herself first. Yeah, I think there was so much going into that battle that was layered and also problematic. I mean, I mean, for Silpha, she didn't know she could do it. She'd seen what happened to somebody who did do it, you know, because she, because the matron did it and paid for it with her life. And then the fact that we had to act so quickly in that moment because we weren't totally prepared for it and she couldn't fix 16 people at once and you know like it was an ambush so i mean there was just the situation even if she w- she'd been willing to risk trying it like would have only done so much good that role play struggle is kind of what keeps the setting alive if we had just flipped a switch at level five and now curses don't don't matter and the thorns don't matter and this would be a very different game right and there are a lot of games where people are rolling dice where the thorns would lose all threat all of a sudden because they're rolling the dice not playing the character or thinking of the consequences but where i was kind of headed with that is one of the things i did not anticipate is how attached to the mutations of our characters our characters are right like silpha is fundamentally mothy what would it be like if she cast remove curse and wasn't a moth anymore and same same with chameleon skin same with poison skin Oh, it would be a loss. It would be like, it would be a total loss. Yeah. It would be. And one of the things I didn't realize for the first like 20 episodes is how deeply essential some of these mutations are to some of the characters who have them. And so when Silpha went to remove curse on herself, if if I were 100% consistent and Silpha were not a fairy she'd have gotten rid of her moth curse. Her, like the, the whole moth thing would have been out the door, just like with Riley. At the at that moment, I had like a little panic attack, right? When she went to remove curse, because I'm like, oh crap, what do I do? And it was in that moment that Sylph as a fairy became true. Because before that, yeah, it was a possibility. It was out there. It was more the, the problem of, well, you obviously did something, something physically has changed about you what what happened to you but even for sable whose condition is in its own way a curse is it's an essential part of her being she has been offered the opportunity to get rid of it and and has not even looked at it because she is so used to being alone and left alone that removing that as the reason for it means she'd have to deal with 
any other potential reason that people don't interact with her. She's not ready for it. I think one of the most interesting conversations we've had about Sable off mic is the reflection that how profound of an impact it is for her that she was never touched. She's just never been touched her whole life. Nobody ever held her hand. Nobody held her when she cried. Nobody soothed her, you know, like nobody kissed her boo-boos better, you know, as she was growing up. Like we we talk a lot about Sable being an isolated character. And what was interesting to me was, was when you said that she's afraid to have her curse removed because she's afraid her skin isn't the problem. I mean, especially with regard to her family. And I think there's some truth to that. I don't think it's just her skin that made her family so cold to her, so removed from her. And uh, and that's a scary prospect for a kid to face. It's one of the things that I love about roleplay is that kind of you can deal with real world problems in a metaphorical way. And as far as my proudest moment for a roleplay, I mean, it's obviously fish puns. <laughs> <laughs> I I enjoy interjecting bad humor, but I guess my most enjoyable moment for roleplay was was Silpha's speech, the bullet points of which I had kind of had planned in advance. I enjoyed giving that speech because here I felt like I had this aside to this character, which was internal most of the time, and I think it had only come up once or twice in the past, particularly like in regard to like when she was expressing to Jalen how she felt the kingdom is basically dogs in a cage fighting to be top dog. That's one of my favorite things Silpha has said in this game. Like that is that has stuck with me all this time. I'm like that that was a hell of a, a hell of an insight. And so here she had an opportunity to present. One of the things her family places value on is the ability to persuade people to your side. And so she was demonstrating this in a, in a public setting. Was was making a speech that was styled to the people in the room with an awareness of their desires and motivations. But also she got to express and unleash some of like her own frustrations and things that she was feeling i enjoyed being able to bring that to light yeah i think i think what was cool about that speech was it was it was a glimpse under silpha's skin that that people don't get often you know because she is she is fairly quiet and demure and polite and stands on ceremony and court decorum and so like for her to enter enter an arena where she was comfortable actually unleashing what was on her fucking mind. Find out that Silpha is the most rebellious, and I don't mean that in a, like, you know, stomping your foot kind of way, but in the, like, true rebellion kind of way, was a surprise for me. She's the one that goes to court, <laughs> you know? So, you know, to find out that she has the most revolutionary attitude of all of us was, was a big surprise to me. Yeah. Part of Silpha's experiences and what she witnessed in court are what have shaped her attitudes, but I think an even greater part of it is the attachment I've given her to the character of our deceased tutor, Muriel Frikers. I think of Muriel as being a, a visionary and, and a profound inspiration to Silpha. And, you know, I, I think of teachers that I've had that I, I loved and were an inspiration to me, and I try to think of how someone Silpha's age would respond to the loss of a mentor like that. She really does have a deep desire to carry on Muriel's torch. And then from a kind of conscious storytelling perspective of how I developed Silpha's personality, I I really did put a significant amount of thought into the animal representing Silpha. It's this moth that looks 
pretty bland on one side, which allows it to blend and survive. But when it opens up its wings to take flight, it's just the inside of its wings are, are beautiful and resplendent. And so I thought it would be cool to represent a character that has kind of a hidden side. And Silpha's speech reveals that and kind of represents the character taking flight in like a, a metaphorical way as she's she's coming into her own. And that's it. We'll see you for real episodes next time on Carrots and Suffering, a D&D Odyssey. <laughs>